Uh, right now on espresso, I've got a single origin Kenya, uh, and then I have our house blend provisions, which is a 50-50 split between a natural Ethiopia and an organic Colombia. Okay. I have a lot of respect for people who know their coffee, mostly because I'm not one of them. Sometimes it feels like a bit of a dark art to me. If you're into like stone fruit flavors in your coffee, I would say the provisions. If you like uh, citrusy. And I always end up saying something like, okay, I don't know. No, um, <laughs> what of those do you think tastes better? I'm at a very typical Portland coffee shop called Cup and Bar. You've been here before. Not literally, but you know what kind of place I'm talking about. High ceilings, whitewashed walls, industrially exposed beams and pipes. There are hook racks to hang up your bike. And of course, there's the coffee itself, which is brewed for the connoisseur's taste. Even the extensive milk menu is a little intimidating. Ooh, I might get that nut milk. Apparently that milk has a die-hard fan base. It's good. Yeah? Yeah, we have people walk out if we don't have it. They come here just for the nut milk. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Coffee shops like Cup and Bar are all over Portland. It's the convention that we expect here and they've damn perfected it. But flouting convention is something else Portland excels at. And what I really want to try is a coffee shop that breaks the mold. Okay, you want cream? That's right. Hey, what do we call this? So I've come to Deadstock in Chinatown. It's a cafe for people who love coffee and sneakers. I'm Faustina Rigoli, and this is Portland Unpacked. Portland is big on community, bringing people together over coffee, food, drinks, politics, music, you name it. Since I arrived here, I've been struck by how welcoming everybody is. And the more I speak to locals, the more I realise Portland is about escaping the high-flying, ladder-climbing world to slow down and reconnect. What I love most is how these beautiful communities and spaces open themselves up to us. Welcome to the shop. Um, yeah, I mean, you can hear in the background, we're out here whipping lattes. Ian Williams is a massive sneakerhead. I've been coming down, especially to this neighborhood, Chinatown, since I was probably 16 years old, uh, to come down here and buy shoes. There's a shoe store out here called Compound, and they sold, like, Japanese toys, like magazines and books, and uh, sneakers and apparel streetwear. Ian is pretty coy about how many pairs of sneakers he owns. Uh, I am above one pair a day for a year. We'll just leave it there. <laughs> Ian's family moved to Oregon when he was 10 years old. They lived in a town called Hillsboro, just outside of Portland. Growing up in Hillsboro, Hillsboro is way different now. Uh, that's where Intel has a lot of their operations. But it was just like Intel, Fields and like farms and just white people. And we were the only black family. I was a terrible student. I guess now they would say I learned different, uh, but in the black community, I needed to try harder, <laughs> you know? Uh, <laughs> um, after school, uh, everybody was going to scholarships and this and that, and I just was like, I don't know what I want to do. Ian didn't get the full credits he needed to graduate, and he wasn't sure what his next step would be. So he started taking on odd jobs to make some money, like detailing cars. But the money I was making, I was buying shoes. And like, why not get paid to, to have them instead, you know? 
At 19, Ian got a job at the Nike employee store. It's a special Nike retail space exclusively for Nike employees and their families. You need a special pass to shop there. Portland has a Nike employee store because Nike's headquarters are actually in Portland. Well, technically, they're in Beaverton, just outside of Portland. You might not know this, but Portland is kind of the sneaker capital of the world. We are the ones who create the things that people are go crazy about. When you put on a pair of sneakers in America, it's very likely they were designed right here. Nike, Adidas, Under Armour, Columbia Sportswear and so many more brands are inventing new shoes every day here in Portland. At the Nike employee store, Ian hit it off with his manager, who was also obsessed with sneakers. Yeah, and he kind of took me under his wing, showed me like the whole world of sneakers. He's like, man, there's shoes for events. There's shoes for, you know, individuals. There's ones that only release in regions. I was like, what in the world? This is amazing. That was where I was like, okay, I want to be on this product creation side. Suddenly, all Ian wanted to do with his life was develop sneaker products. Maybe this Nike employee store gig could be the stepping stone that he needed. This whole time I thought I was going to get discovered by someone and just didn't. So I was like, there has to be another opportunity out there somewhere. And the opportunity I found was as a a janitor uh, at at the headquarters. Ian arrived on his first day as a janitor, or a custodian, as they sometimes call it in America. And his plan was to use his foot in the door to get chummy with the sneaker designers and hopefully climb his way up from there. But the, the first area that I got assigned to was, um, was in a basement where there was like a machine shop and everybody left at five o'clock. It was like five, I'm out. Uh, I started at five. So I just, I, I didn't really get to know anybody, but I got to see a lot of cool things because I, I cleaned around the machines that did initial prototyping for the airbags. Airbags are the cushions in the sole of Nike shoes. And that was where they also made a lot of um, like early, early prototype stuff. So I got to see things when they were sometimes three years, three or four years out when it was like initial ideas. It was pretty exciting. But what Ian needed was FaceTime. Eventually, he was moved to a different floor where people worked longer hours and sometimes his shift would cross over with the product designers. Then I was like, all right, cool. I would wear my most expensive or my craziest shoes, but I'm cleaning toilets. So they would be like, man, why are you wearing those? I'm like, because I want to be at your desk. I don't want to be doing this, you know? And I'm pretty open about that kind of stuff. I don't care. Like, I'll, I'll tell you straight up. Like, So I started meeting people. And as you take people's trash out, you know, people are like, who are you? Then I would just make comments on things that, that were on their desk. And then it was like, I would walk in and they'd be like, yo, hey, we about to drop those. What do you think about it? You know, or, or something like that. And I was like, you guys should let me do a shoe. And, um, and they were like, whatever. And uh, I pitched an idea called the Custodian Pack. Three shoes, one inspired by Windex, the other one, my vacuum that I used. And then the last one was inspired by the like slippery sign, the wet floor sign. Uh, and then they decided to release the wet floor sign shoe. He was still working as a janitor. But now he had something tangible on his portfolio and he got a small desk for himself in a hallway. I was teaching myself Illustrator, Photoshop, all this kind of stuff. I was a janitor for the rest of the time. And then got an opportunity to interview for a job and landed that developer position. And I did that job for five years. At like year two, I was bored. I was like, what's next? 
what I really love about sneakers is community. What could I do about the people? I guess I could just bring them together. I was like, well, what brings people together every single day? Uh, well, I guess like a gallery could, but I need to make money. What makes money? Coffee. And that's how, I, <laughs> and that's where I am right now. <laughs> so we are a sneaker themed coffee shop. So really I can just hang out with my homies and talk about shoes all day. A lot of people describe it as like your, your bedroom in high school. Uh, a lot of the pictures that we have and posters that we have on the wall are like old ads and, and posters that maybe I had from growing up or that customers have brought in. Uh, some things I found in the trash can when I was a janitor. They were like, throw this away. I'm like, yeah, no problem. Yeah, I'll get it right on that. And I'll just stash it. Uh, we have sneakers, of course, all over the place. All of the employees, we all rotate our collections. In a city full of competing sneaker brands, there's not a lot of nonpartisan sneaker territory. Because the brands don't mix. If you work at an agency that works with Nike, you can't hang out with people who work at Adidas. You just like, like everybody has cooties. I just wanted a middle spot that was like a neutral zone. So that's what he created. Ian went from sitting alone in an office, cut off from the sneaker community, to being the person who brings everyone together. Sneaker culture is everywhere in Portland. The big brands bring in the smaller brands. The industry has become like this fertile land from which an entire city of sports writers, creative agencies and content makers has grown. Ian says that there are four creative agencies in this building alone and everyone working in sneakers gets their morning coffee from Deadstock. To be able to bring all those people together in one spot um, and even all the employees who work in the shop all want to work in the industry in some way. Design, uh, marketing, engineering. The, 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 the shop is meant to be a kick spot, but also a platform for people to, to, to find those ways because so many people did it for me. And I have to, I have to give back. It's, it'd be jacked if I didn't. Deadstock is cultivating the sneaker culture scene in the neighbourhood too. Since it opened, popular streetwear shops have started popping up. Brands like Laundry, Produce, Compound, Index, all in and around Chinatown. While coffee culture has been growing more competitive and exclusive, Ian's been building a space where coffee kind of takes a back seat. Uh, you know, I, I like a lot of coffee shops now. I didn't used to, but I think uh, coffee in Portland is like is like relaxing its shoulders, you know? It was always very tense, and our motto is coffee should be dope because coffee just has always been really boring and rigid and crunchy. And now I feel like it's getting, you know, somebody gave like a little shoulder massage and was like, yo, you can be you. You can be you, and, and like, it's, it's okay. You don't have to be a butthead, you know, uh, about this thing. That's not to say the coffee isn't great. I had one, and believe me, I used to think that you couldn't get good coffee in America. Our coffee is pretty dang good, and it's because I'm a product guy. I just like making stuff, and I also like to prove people wrong. And I think that comes from growing up in the suburbs, being told that I can't. My least favorite phrase is when somebody says, oh, this actually tastes good, or you actually did a good job, because you were expecting something bad. But it also makes me smile because you underestimated us and now you can't anymore. 
The sneaker industry has a loud voice in Portland, but there are plenty of other communities if you know where to look, which is why my next stop is dropping in to see Emma McElroy. I didn't know much about Portland fashion before coming here. All I knew was that Portland has tax-free shopping, which is pretty dope. I've picked Emma to be my lawless fashion guide. Fashion was always a weird thing for me. I, uh, I grew up wearing my brother's clothes, so I didn't really understand fashion. Never got introduced to it. It was a complete tomboy. It wasn't about putting on a show for anybody else. I didn't give a shit what anybody else thought. Not far from Deadstock is a clothing store called Wildfang. Emma is the founder and owner. Yeah, I'm officially the least fashionable member of the Wildfang team. From a style perspective, I'd probably gravitate to rock and roll, right? So anybody from Keith Richards to Patti Smith, it's Blondie, it's even honestly on a tighter, more uptight day, it's probably Johnny Cash, right? There's a reason for Emma's personal taste. Rock and roll goes hand in hand with androgyny. Gender's a weird thing for me. I associate all over the spectrum on gender. Like some days I like to go super masculine. Then other days I like to go super feminine. Um, I don't even like to use the words masculine and feminine, but for the purposes of describing it, some days I just like to clash them. You can probably tell that Emma has a strong sense of self, but when she was younger, she struggled to translate that into the image that she wanted to project of herself. I wouldn't say I loved shopping. (laughs) There's a fair amount of judgment. You know, are your hips too big? Are your boobs too small? I'd walk into the women's section, it'd be like deep V's and like short skirts. And there's a time and a place for that, but I just find it kind of confusing that there were these two separate sections and often the stuff I liked was was in the wrong section. Was there a moment where you thought, this needs to change, or this could possibly change? Yeah, yeah, no, there was a very clear moment. Um, Me and my best mate were shopping in um, Urban Outfitters. The graphic tees were like floral and pastels and scoopy necks and like very bohemian and and then all the stuff with real attitude was in the men's section my best friend was holding a blazer with little patches on the elbows and she's like five foot and she put it on and it just looked ridiculous and I just remember like deeply disappointedly looking at all the stuff in the women's section and thinking like why do we get the soft crappy graphic tees and why do they get the the cool tough attitudinal graphic tees and she was like I feel the same way about the blazers like all the blazers in the women's section flare out in a weird way at the hips and they have crap details like the pockets are fake then you go to the men's section you get great lining deep pockets and you get great details the needs and tastes of people like them were being entirely overlooked but Emma and her best friend Jules figured they weren't the only ones feeling the injustice of this they had no fashion experience They'd never launched their own brand before, but they were working in marketing at Nike, so they knew something about selling a good idea. We were still at Nike, and we were working nights and weekends on this crazy idea that we thought made sense. Emma drained her savings, and she took out her 401k, as in her superannuation savings, all to back this one idea, Wild Fang. And when we launched, we launched with just a landing page and an email sign-up and a manifesto that kind of stated who we were. We're female Robin Hoods. We steal our styles from the boys and maniacally dispense blazers and bow ties as we roam from town to town in these stolen styles of ours, right? And I think people just read it and were like, yes, that needs to exist. And 22,000 people signed up in the first 30 days. 
there was huge, obvious demand for a brand like Wild Fang. A whole lot of people who felt overlooked by fashion and wanted to find a community. Even queer celebrities, from Janelle Monae to Ellen Page, threw their support behind the idea. Over the years, their fans have scratched their names into the wall inside the shop. Uh, let's see. Oh, I love this. Bad bitch with a good soul. That's great. Um, so somewhere on this is Janelle Monet, and somewhere on this is Pussy Riot, and somewhere on this is Phoebe Robinson, and somewhere on this is Churches, but I can't find any of them right Sick. now. Uh, shit, the Pussy Riot one should be really obvious because it's a balaclava. Oh, there it is. When they're standing in our store, it always tickles people, the diversity of people who are shopping with them. You know, they're like, I cannot imagine anywhere else other than maybe a grocery store where this these group of people would be together. So our oldest customer is 85, and she's in regularly, right? So I, uh, I love that we service women based on values, not on an age limit. We also have a really strong gender nonconforming community that shops with us and feels welcome here. This speaks to Portland's promise to be an inclusive, queer-friendly, gender-non-conforming paradise, a place where anyone can fit in. It's something I felt strongly on my visit here, more so than anywhere else in the world. I've got a funny accent. I'm queer. I'm a woman. Like, I don't totally fit in most of the rooms I end up in, you know? But um, Portland's accepted me and, like, given me massive opportunity. That spirit of when we believe in the mission and we believe in the outcome, we're going to come together to create something really cool. Do you think it's a coincidence that Wild Fang has a home in Portland? I think Wild Fang could have been born anywhere, but I think the fact that it was born in Portland has given it values that are very synonymous with this city. You know, Wild Fang's cheeky. We show you our fuck-ups. We show you behind the scenes. That's all very Portland, right? Like, keep Portland weird and, you know. There's also, I would say, in Portland, a real spirit of collaboration and community. And collaboration can be a soft word, but it's not in Portland, like... This is our second store, but our first store was um, this tiny little store in East Portland, and um, we built it for $11,000, right, which is kind of almost impossible in retail. But the reason we did that is because, like, 12 amazing craftspeople from the local community stepped up and said, we believe in your vision, we want this thing to exist, we're going to help you build it. Last year we gave over $400,000 to charity, which was pretty impressive, uh, especially because we're not profitable yet. We've had responses to pop cultural moments or news moments that most brands would be too nervous to take a point of view on. Like Melania Trump. You might have heard about this incident from 2018. Melania Trump wore a I really don't care jacket. We, within four hours, launched our I really do care. The clapback jacket Wildfang released raised a ton of money, which was donated to Races, a refugee and immigrant charity. You know, we have a really popular event called Free Speech, um, where we just open the mic to people who want to tell their stories. We always ensure that the lineup is 50% uh, women of colour, 50% LGBTQ. I don't scan those stories. I don't censor them. You know, we've had people uh, stand up and talk about an abortion that their husband's in the room and he didn't know they had. I had someone stand up and call us out for not making uh, good enough plus-size clothing. But that's the point. That's why it's called free speech, is the community gets the microphone. We're happy to stand in the line of fire for criticism when we believe it's the right thing. Like Ian, Emma believes that when you've been lifted up by your community, you then turn around and lift them back up too. And that spirit of togetherness really shines through everything in Portland. Our entire mission is to change how women get to show up in the world. They fixed the plus-size range, by the way. 
I'm feeling pretty confident and energised by my chats with Ian and Emma. So tonight I decide to try something a bit out of my comfort zone. Oh my God! Great to see you too. Hang around for a second. We're, we're about we're about to do an interview here. I don't go to church, but if I did, it's like fantasy of church choir meets rock band. Can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. This is Kate Sokoloff, the producer of the Low Bar Chorale. I've come down on a Tuesday night to join about 200 people at Revolution Hall, and we're here to sing together. Tonight, the theme is Tom Petty. We got another song coming up. Who knows this one? Shadow of a Doubt? Raise your hand. That's what I thought. We're going to have to kind of learn it, (laughs) I think. When I step inside, the room is packed and the singing has already started. A live band is playing on stage and everyone around me is holding sheets with lyrics. They're midway through a rehearsal. Nobody bats an eye when I step into the crowd and join in. Nobody cares that I can't really sing. The Low Bar Chorale has been gathering every week for three years now. So in 2016, uh, David Bowie died, and I was feeling really sad about that. Kate had an idea to bring together a makeshift choir and sing a tribute to David Bowie in the Portland Planetarium. So she called up her friend Ben Landsberg. He's a musician. And we thought, let's have some rehearsals in a bar. And we didn't really know if it would work. The first time it was Ben and his girlfriend and me and maybe two or three other... There were like eight people. Um, But then I guess some word got around because next time it was like 15 people. (laughs) But then it was like 30 people. And then it was like 60 people. And then when we finally did it in the planetarium, it was 200 people. Every musician we loved started dying. It was a very weird year. So Prince died and George Michael died. People kept saying, why don't we sing Prince and George Michael and find this sort of moving, emotional resonance and sense of community? And so we just thought, let's keep it going. And as long as the bar will have us, as long as we can get some musicians together, that'll make it work. One night in the early days, Ben and Kate noticed how much infectious emotional energy was in the room every time they rehearsed. This wasn't long after the 2016 election. We think we have something that may be what people need right now. A lot of people who come fairly often um, talk about this as kind of their church. And I think in the States right now, we're going through a time that's really pretty um, dark for us and, and something that a lot of us are not used to. And this is a way that people can leave their politics at the door, leave their troubles at the door and find a way to really truly connect in a very deep level. Absolutely. God, that was so well said. <laughs> And sometimes I will look out and see who's just dropped in to sing. And they're like really well-known musicians who want to come and work on harmony. Like um, Eric from um, Dandy Warhols. Like, it's crazy. It's like a who's who of Portland musicians sometimes. It's open to anybody 21 and older. We've had lots of people from out of town come. We definitely hear some accents here and there. And would love anyone who's in Portland ever to just come and sing with us. It's really fun. 
So you can find us on Facebook, Lobar Corral, uh, and we have a website, lobarcorral.com. Yeah, but we're every other Tuesday we're here at Revolution Hall at Showbar. That's amazing. I am a fan of oh. Lobar Corral. Please come I'm back. A, yes, okay, I will come back. It. Thank you. <laughs> I've got an in. Yes. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. I'm Faustina Rogoli, and this is Portland Unpacked. In the next episode of Portland Unpacked, we unpack why Portland is the centre of foodie experimentation. Mom always kept pillowcases in the trunk of the car, like king-size pillowcases, and then knives inside of the glove box. We'd always pull over and all the Greek ladies would get out just in their spandex and bras and bandanas in their hair, and I'd sit in the car to like be on patrol to see if anybody's coming, and they would steal shit. They'd steal olives, they would steal greens, 